0: Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where listeners can support this work that I'm doing. Wesleyyang.substack.com Back in February of 2016, an editor at Harper's Magazine asked me to write a story responding to The reemergence of a culture of student protest at universities across the country, occurring alongside and eluding often and drawing much of their energy from protests across the face of various American cities, most notably Ferguson, Missouri, after the killing of Michael Brown, as a part of a general resurgence of interest and concern. Over the question of racial equality, what the proponents of this movement would call the still unfinished business of black and white America, which was happening, of course, in the latter years of the second term of the presidency of America's first black president. A milestone that had been presented at the time as the inauguration of a kind of post racial age, explicitly understood as such by many of the white American voters who took enormous pride, sense of accomplishment, but also felt that there was an implicit bargain in the election of Barack Obama that entailed the moving beyond the racial framing of American politics. There was high optimism at the time that by the year 2014 and 2015 had given way to a new consciousness and a politics in a new key, reflecting that consciousness. One of the uncomfortable ironies of the Obama years that has since been widely publicized was that black Americans ended the second term of America's first black president in possession of significantly less wealth than they began it. This fact, of course, was connected to the unequal distribution of penalty and pain inflicted upon American homeowners by the housing crisis that left the financial industry and other culprits responsible for the massive and sudden deleveraging of American wealth intact, and in fact in a better and stronger position that they had ever been in before, while leaving a great many Americans including a great many black Americans, in very desperate straits. So this was the politics. Alongside of this, of course, there was the emergence of uh, new research into episodes in which the United States governments, in its various forms, not just in the South, where overt Jim Crow reigned but also in the North, where government policy drove patterns of racial segregation and the racial stratification that accompanied it in works of scholarship, such as the color of money, the color of law. These happened alongside other pieces of scholarship that had been accruing throughout the decade of the 2000s into the way the war on poverty became a war on crime and built what had then become known as a prison-industrial complex, that according to some of the increasingly present and plangent rhetoric of the time, represented a kind of new Jim Crow, suggesting, by virtue of an associative logic, that in fact slavery had given way to a form of second-class citizenship, which had in turn given way to another form, of second-class citizenship, enforced through the agency of the carceral state. This kind of activist, relatively far-left perspective had migrated since the 1970s from the mouths of black nationalists, members of the Nation of Islam, to receive scholarly vindication in the works of some activist-minded historians, sociologists, and so forth. And so new movements, looking at the areas of American life that continued to be stratified by race, had emerged. And all of this culminated in racial activism in the streets that was pegged to the kind of activism that was happening on college campuses, which made continual reference and allusion to what was happening in the streets, but also engaged in a very significant conceptual move accompanied by a rhetorical move that I refer to as ideological succession. What interested me, of course, about this movement Was the way it proceeded from a totalizing analysis that saw culture, politics, and economics as conjoined, intertwined, moving as one, all of it sharing in a single motive. A totalizing analysis is one that links what happens in the streets to what happens in the bedroom to what happens to the classroom. All of it reflected a kind of racial inequality. And so the argument went that there was an all-pervading structure of economic, political, but also psychological and social subordination. Back in the fall of 2015, There had been the infamous confrontation in the quad of Silliman College between a group of students and a professor of evolutionary biology named Nicholas Christakis, who at the time, along with his wife Erica, was what was called then the master of Silliman College, a
1: term that referred to a teacher as opposed to a pupil, rather than A master as opposed to a slave. We'll be talking about the Yale incident in
0: a future podcast, doing a deep dive into it, because that was one of the events. These were the events that brought a new moral lexicon into public view, a language of structural disadvantage, a language of Systemic racism, structural violence, white privilege, white fragility, and microaggression. Ideas that sought to intervene in the very structure of reality based upon the premise that our reality was fundamentally polluted by and indeed at the very level of the language itself structured in such a way as to assure the uplifting of some At the expense of others who would be subordinated by the very rituals, manners, mores, habits, expectations, standards that comprised
1: our everyday lives. I understood right from the start that this was a project with virtually no limits
0: on the degree of regulation that it sought to impose, and one that was in principle because by virtue of the totalizing analysis that it relied upon, necessarily totalitarian in the way that it would attempt to intervene in the very structure of reality itself, changing the language, upending the various forms of cooperation, competition that were constitutive of our world and its systems. All of these systems had to be dismantled. And so, I had a structural and intellectual analysis of all of this, but I ended up writing in a very different mode, in a personal mode, trying to situate myself in relationship to these new doctrines. Who was I anyway, and how did I fit in to that matrix? Well, I was the child of two immigrants born in Korea in the 1930s, and I was the child of two immigrants whose world
1: had been destroyed by the violence of that prior world. And so to me, there was something about the microaggression. Typical young people, Mm -hmm. moving out of adolescence and stepping into their adult
0: lives, facing the challenges of what it means to grow up, encounter diversity in all of its various forms, including how to be in the presence of the very rich and how to live in a society stratified along so many different dimensions and axes. It was also the language of people trying to give a name to forms of racial disadvantage that persisted,
1: even in the face of a nominally race-neutral society where. Violations of civil rights were against the law, and where, in
0: fact, a whole system of set asides and preferences aimed at, if not closing various disparities, at the very least opening up the door of opportunity to those who had hitherto been excluded from it. A society that, that in all good conscience, committed to a program of inclusion.
1: And that was willing to exercise its power in pursuit of that goal. But where nonetheless, disadvantages of various kinds that had not been mapped, that were simply present in
0: the realm of the everyday, touched upon the lives of everyone. And so a language came into existence that attempted to talk about these lingering forms of disadvantage. And one of the ways, At the center of this new way of thinking about things was the microaggression. On the
1: one hand, the microaggression was a kind of confession of how little there was for anyone to complain about,
0: because only in the absence of greater injustices would the microaggression be something that
1: people were capable of perceiving. On the other hand, it was indisputably true that the retrograde
0: attitudes of previous times continued to linger in people's consciousness were often present in everyday interaction and would suddenly impinge upon what began as the most innocent interaction,
1: putting a little brush of poison onto an everyday exchange that suggested that other people, even despite themselves, could not help but see you in ways that diminished you. And this was not something that was necessarily in one's
0: power as an individual to fight, but in fact, something baked into the structure of reality itself. This was the power of the term. This was the source of its persuasiveness. This was the seductive power of the term and also the danger. That it posed. I ended up writing a piece that ended up being far gentler and more empathetic than I thought I would be on my way in as I reflected upon my own experiences and held myself account to something that may, in today's environment, not actually be so wise to hold oneself account for publicly which of course was to be a part of a group of young, wise acres, mostly male, mostly Jewish, mostly Asian in a suburban gifted and talented program who were not so kind to a little black girl in our midst. And even in the midst of this unkindness, I do recall seeing her with her mother The only black child of either sex
1: participating in this class for gifted youngsters and thinking about what it must have felt like to send her daughter into that environment where she would not be protected from the jibes of other students, knowing it would not be possible to protect her, but believing. That in so doing, she was setting her up to do something that she herself was
0: not able to do, which was to climb the ladder of American upward mobility
1: at whatever cost it might take. And the cost could be enormous. And we, little boys in the third and fourth grade, were a part of that cost back then. And it's something, when I think back to it, that shames and stings me. Because I was a part of a system of normalized and routine, quotidian brutalities. And I would myself grow to be the target of organized and routine quotidian brutalities. And this, of course, is the system that the woke seek to reform. The manner
0: in which they seek to reform it is a totalizing one, emerging from the totalizing quality
1: of their analysis. It amounts to a kind of ongoing inquisition, one that I bridle against one that I criticize relentlessly, one that I reject on principle, one that I see as inevitably harmful, but whose impetus on behalf of its creation I can grasp as well as any other person. And so thusly situated, I made my first foray, my
0: first intervention into the politics in a new key that was then emerging in America, that the next seven years into the present would take the form, among other things, of a continuous adjudication of all the underlying questions. As I reread it, I think it stands up very well. And for that reason, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read it now. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You are listening to the Year 0 podcast, which is hosted at Substack at wesleyyang.substack.com. A few years back, I wrote an article about Aaron Schwartz, a hacker and activist who killed himself while under indictment for the unauthorized downloading of millions of academic journal articles from an online archive. Schwartz was devoted to an ethic of candid introspection, which he had practiced even at the age of 17. On a blog he kept as a freshman at Stanford University in 2004. In September of that year, Schwartz published a short post confessing to something that you take the time to consider.
1: However much I hate prejudice at a conscious level, I am nonetheless extremely prejudiced.
0: He wrote, at my CS class, my eyes just passed over the large number of born and Asian students to land on mostly white ones. Black ones, too, occasionally. My Asian neighbor tried to make conversation with me, and even though he had
1: no accent, because of his face, I imagined that he did. Had he been white, there was no question I would have started talking to him about stuff. But instead, I brushed him off. I begin to wonder how many people I've skipped over. There's no term that quite captures what Schwartz is describing here. He is admitting to an assumption that results in no act
0: of visible hostility or hatred. He simply declines to extend to the Asian man who is sitting next to him in class the same degree of friendliness and regard that he would extend to a white man. Perhaps Schwartz's classmate asked himself later that day whether Schwartz was merely a rude jerk or whether there was a specifically racial component to what had just happened. Maybe he didn't pause to wonder if the latter was the cause. Maybe as an Asian person living in the most Asian region in America, in a classroom full of others of his kind, at a school where Asians were strongly represented, he had no reason to think that anyone would treat him unkindly because of his race. Or maybe the nameless Asian man came away from that incident
1: inwardly torn,
0: uncertain whether he had encountered subtle racism, his own social ineptitude, or the intrinsic hardness of the world. Maybe he suspected that all these things were factors knowing all the while that to make an issue of it would seem an excessive response
1: to an easily deniable claim about an event of small importance with many possible explanations. If Schwartz had thought more deeply about the reflexive aversion he felt
0: toward the Asian man sitting next to him, he might have said something like this.
1: This person is likely to be a bore. This person is likely to be a grind.
0: This person is likely to be lacking in emotional resonance,
1: presence, humor, individuality, spontaneity, energy, imagination, and warmth. This person is likely to be. Passive, obedient, submissive, a hard-working non-entity, a nobody, a nullity, one of those mute, lugubrious, bespectacled,
0: glum-faced, inscrutable, spiky-haired presences, haunting the library behind a stack of books, who gaze impassively into a column of figures or drool
1: onto the table while napping in the wee hour. But it's doubtful he would have compiled that list. The whole point of living
0: in a culture is that much of the labor of perception and judgment is done for you, spread through the media and absorbed through an imperceptible process that has no single author. Perhaps you, too, can envision being surrounded by Asian faces,
1: all of them merging into one another in their meek self-effacement. What we know for sure is that had he gotten to know Schwartz, who would soon drop out of
0: Stanford to help found the startup Reddit, that is to say, had Schwartz not brushed him off because of his race, that nameless Asian man's life would have been changed for the better. How do you quantify the effects of things that don't happen to you. I thought of this question when I glimpsed a picture of protesters at Yale University last fall. Many of them black and female, bearing a sign with the following message. We out here. We've been here. We ain't leaving.
1: We are loved it was unclear to what extent the tension between insisting that you aren't leaving,
0: presumably in defiance of someone or something that would prefer
1: otherwise, and declaring that you are loved. Presumably in solidarity with others who might doubt, that this was true about themselves and others like them was intentional. But the slogans testified to the sad but unmentioned fact that seemed to be at the core of
0: these campus protests, that while you can prohibit the use of racial slurs through rules and norms, no administration or law
1: can force someone to befriend you or to love you, or to see you as a person who matters, or to notice you at all.
0: I should confess here to the biases that influence my thinking. At the YMCA camp I attended when I was nine, the first, and as it happens, the last, setting in which I was subjected to daily racial slurs. My father asked the counselors to ensure fair odds in the physical confrontation between me and the tormentors that he made clear were to be
1: expected. It would not have occurred to him to demand that the administration protect me from bullies. Growing
0: up meant forsaking the frightened victim in yourself, which had a way of sliding into disdain for the category of frightened victims in general. I don't mean to suggest that I endured a tough upbringing, or that my father was a hard man. My upbringing in a small New Jersey suburb was soft, especially when compared with the life, for instance, of my mother. The suffering she endured was squarely in the median range of what people born in Korea in the 1930s experienced. It was not unusual for American bombers to destroy your family's house during the Korean War. It was not unusual for your brother or father or sister to be killed by friendly fire. It was routine for proud and ancient families like my mother's to be reduced to a destitute rabble living off the charity of American missionaries. But her struggle did and does make most of the challenges that you are likely to face as the child of Americans in a part of the country where most of the kids assume they are headed to college seem fantastically trivial in
1: comparison.
0: The theory of microaggression can't help but seem to me mostly an indicator of how radically devoid of other threats our lives in America have become at least in the fortunate parts of the country where people go to college.
1: But maybe I've grown
0: habituated to conditions that today's young people feel entitled to reject.
1: And maybe I escaped the role of frightened victim by finding others to victimize. When I think back to those
0: years when all my attitudes were formed, I think also of the only black girl in the gifted and talented programs where I made my first friend. Her name was Shekina, and she was different in many respects from the suburban Jewish and Asian male wiseasses who were the norm in those classes, if not in the general population of their own schools. What an odious term, the gifted, to describe a group whose gifts mainly consisted of being the children of lawyers and dentists and professors and bankers but let's not deny that there was a certain facility we possessed or that it was a source of pride to be segregated into a place where our need for instruction tailored to our superior abilities would be honored it should not surprise anyone that being bullied during our school days made us not into lovers of humanity but victimizers of others the moment we had the numbers on our side. And I guess it goes without saying that we abused Shekinah mercilessly, and that even if our teachers had done more to forbid us from mocking how she talked, as they sometimes tried to do, to little effect, no one could force us to see her as our equal. Later years, in those same gifted classes, I encountered omnicompetent, hyper-articulated black teenagers who seemed on the fast track to world domination. They could code switch from street vernacular to the smooth diction of the lecture hall, using each idiom to swell the power and persuasiveness of the other. They had forged in the crucible of their souls the resources necessary to survive and triumph in a world that wasn't inclined to believe in their existence until they had proved
1: it. Everyone wanted to know them. Adversity and the strength to meet it with forbearance and grace had made them
0: more interesting and complex than anyone who hadn't been exposed to the same stimulus That adversity ends up becoming
1: for those who aren't destroyed by it. Those people were cool. They were also exceptional. The campus protests remind us that any system that
0: requires exceptional fortitude from certain categories of people is an unjust one. The jargon that tried to name this injustice. And serve as a tool in the struggle against it, white privilege, microaggression, safe space, etc., caught on so fast because it named something that people recognized right away from their own lives. Like any new language that seeks to politicize everyday life, the terms were awkward, heavy handed, and formulaic, but they gave confidence to people desiring redress. the subtle incursions on their dignity that they suspected were holding them back. The new vocabulary provided confirmation of what young people have always had reason to suspect—that the world was conspiring to strip them of their dignity and keep them in their
1: place—and elevated those grievances to the status of a larger political project.
0: Of course, the terms could easily become totalizing and portray the world as an iron cage in which crude identity categories determine everyone's faith in a way that is demonstrably
1: false. In practice, the protesters wound up appealing to college bureaucrats to wipe away the accretions of the world's violent history. And yet they also gave voice to an aspiration that people of my generation and older, who had grown up more isolated in a wider America, had not thought could be expressed as a collective demand rather
0: than as an individual wish that all of us, even the unexceptional, could claim as a matter of right an equal share of existential comfort as those who had never had cause to think of themselves as the other. This still seems to me an impossible wish, and like all impossible wishes, one that is charged with authoritarian potential. But those of us who have grown inured to life's quotidian brutalities, the ones we accept for ourselves and the ones we unthinkingly impose on others, should not be surprised that the young have a different sense of the possible than we do or forget too readily what it was like before we were so in This is the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where you can go to read my writings and where you can subscribe personally to enable the continuation of this work at wesleyyang.substack.com.